Section 22 of The Arabian Nights Entertainments, Volume 3, translated by Jonathan Scott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The Story of Allah Adin, or The Wonderful Lamp, Part 7. In this place, the African magician passed the remainder of the day till the darkest time of night, when he pulled the lamp out of his breast and rubbed it. At that summons the genie appeared and said, "'What wouldst thou have? I am ready to obey thee as thy slave, and the slave of all those who have that lamp in their hands, both I and the other slaves of the lamp.' "'I command thee,' replied the magician, "'to transport me immediately, and the palace which thou and the other slaves of the lamp have built in this city, with all the people in it, to Africa.' The genie made no reply, but with the assistance of the other genie, the slaves of the lamp immediately transported him and the palace entire to the spot whither he was desired to convey it. As soon as the sultan rose the next morning, according to custom, he went into his closet to have the pleasure of contemplating and admiring Allah ad palace. But when he first looked that way, and instead of a palace saw an empty space, such as it was before the palace was built. He thought he was mistaken, and rubbed his eyes, but when he looked again he still saw nothing more the second time than the first, though the weather was fine, the sky clear, and the dawn advancing had made all objects very distinct. He looked again in front, to the right and left, but beheld nothing more than he had formerly been used to see from his window. His amazement was so great that he stood for some time, turning his eyes to the spot where the palace had stood, but where it was no longer to be seen. He could not comprehend how so large a palace as Allah ad which he had seen plainly every day for some years, and but the day before, should vanish so soon, and not leave the least remains behind. "'Certainly,' said he to himself, "'I am not mistaken.' It stood there. If it had fallen, the materials would have lain in heaps, and if it had been swallowed up by an earthquake, there would be some mark left. At last, though he was convinced that no palace stood now opposite his own, he could not help staying some time at his window, to see whether he might not be mistaken. At last he retired to his apartment, not without looking behind him before he quitted the spot, ordered the Grand Vizier to be sent for, with expedition, and in the meantime sat down, his mind agitated by so many different conjectures that he knew not what to resolve. The Grand Vizier did not make the Sultan wait long for him, but came with so much precipitation that neither he nor his attendants, as they passed, missed Allah ad palace. Neither did the porters, when they opened the palace gates, observe any alteration. When he came into the sultan's presence, he said to him, "'The haste in which your majesty sent for me makes me believe something extraordinary has happened, since you know that this is a day of public audience, and I should not have failed of attending at the usual time.' "'Indeed,' said the sultan, "'it is something very extraordinary, as you say.' and you will allow it to be so. Tell me what is become of Allah ad palace.' "'His palace?' replied the Grand Vizier, in amazement. 
I thought, as I passed, it stood in its usual place. Such substantial buildings are not so easily removed. Go into my closet, said the sultan, and tell me if you can see it. The grand vizier went into the closet, where he was struck with no less amazement than the sultan had been. When he was well assured that there was not the least appearance of this palace, he returned to the sultan. Well, said the sultan, have you seen Ala Adin's palace? No, answered the vizier, but your majesty may remember that I had the honour to tell you that palace, which was the subject of your admiration, with all its immense riches, was only the work of magic and a magician, but your majesty would not pay the least attention to what I said. The sultan, who could not deny what the grand vizier had represented to him, flew into the greater passion. "'Where is that impostor, that wicked wretch?' said he, "'that I may have his head taken off immediately.' "'Sir,' replied the grand vizier, "'it is some days since he came to take his leave of your majesty, on pretence of hunting. He ought to be sent for, to know what is become of his palace.' since he cannot be ignorant of what has been transacted. "'That is too great an indulgence,' replied the sultan. "'Command a detachment of horse to bring him to me, loaded with chains.' The grand vizier gave orders for a detachment, and instructed the officer who commanded them how they were to act, that Allah ad might not escape. The detachment pursued their orders, and about five or six leagues from the town, met him returning from the chase. The officer advanced respectfully, and informed him the sultan was so impatient to see him that he had sent his party to accompany him home. Allah ad had not the least suspicion of the true reason of their meeting him, but when he came within half a league of the city, the detachment surrounded him when the officer addressed himself to him, and said, Prince, it is with great regret that I declare to you the sultan's order to arrest you, and to carry you before him as a criminal. I beg of you not to take it ill that we acquit ourselves of our duty, and to forgive us. Aladdin, who felt himself innocent, was much surprised at this declaration, and asked the officer if he knew what crime he was accused of, who replied he did not. Then Aladdin finding that his retinue was much inferior to this detachment, alighted off his horse, and said to the officers, "'Execute your orders. I am not conscious that I have committed any offence against the sultan's person or government.' A heavy chain was immediately put about his neck, and fastened round his body, so that both his arms were pinioned down. The officer then put himself at the head of the detachment, and one of the troopers, taking hold of the end of the chain, and proceeding after the officer, led Allah ad who was obliged to follow him on foot, into the city. When this detachment entered the suburbs, the people who saw Allah ad thus led as a state criminal, never doubted but that his head was to be cut off, and as he was generally beloved, some took sabres and other arms, and those who had none gathered stones, and followed the escort. The last division faced about to disperse them, but their numbers presently increased so much that the soldiery began to think it would be well if they could get into the sultan's palace before Allah ad was rescued, to prevent which 
according to the different extent of the streets, they took care to cover the ground by extending or closing. In this manner, they with great difficulty arrived at the palace square, and there drew up in a line, till their officer and troopers with Allah ad had got within the gates, which were immediately shut. Allah ad was carried before the sultan, who waited for him, attended by the grand vizier, in a balcony, and as soon as he saw him, he ordered the executioner, who waited there for the purpose, to strike off his head, without hearing him or giving him leave to clear himself. As soon as the executioner had taken off the chain that was fastened about Ala Adin's neck and body, and laid down a skin stained with the blood of the many he had executed, he made the supposed criminal kneel down and tied a bandage over his eyes then drawing his sabre took his aim by flourishing it three times in the air waiting for the sultan's giving the signal to strike at that instant the grand vizier perceiving that the populace had forced the guard of horse crowded the great square before the palace and were scaling the walls in several places and beginning to pull them down to force their way in he said to the sultan before he gave the signal I beg of your majesty to consider what you are going to do, since you will hazard your palace being destroyed, and who knows what fatal consequence may follow. My palace forced, replied the sultan. Who can have that audacity? Sir, answered the grand vizier, if your majesty will but cast your eyes towards the great square and on the palace walls, you will perceive the truth of what I say. The sultan was so much alarmed when he saw so great a crowd, and how enraged they were, that he ordered the executioner to put his sabre immediately into the scabbard, to unbind Allah ad and at the same time commanded the porters to declare to the people that the sultan had pardoned him, and that they might retire. Those who had already got upon the walls, and were witnesses of what had passed, abandoned their design and got quickly down overjoyed that they had saved the life of a man they dearly loved and published the news amongst the rest which was presently confirmed by the mace-bearers from the top of the terraces the justice which the sultan had done to allah ad soon disarmed the populace of their rage the tumult abated and the mob dispersed when allah ad found himself at liberty he turned towards the balcony and perceiving the sultan, raised his voice, and said to him in a moving manner, I beg of your majesty to add one favour more to that which I have already received, which is to let me know my crime. Your crime, answered the sultan, perfidious wretch, do you not know it? Come hither, and I will show it you. Allah ad went up when the sultan, going before him without looking at him, said, Follow me, and then led him into his closet. When he came to the door, he said, Go in. You ought to know whereabouts your palace stood. Look round, and tell me what is become of it. Allah ad looked, but saw nothing. He perceived the spot upon which his palace had stood, but not being able to divine how it had disappeared, was thrown into such confusion and amazement that he could not return one word of answer. The sultan, growing impatient, demanded of him again 
where is your palace and what has become of my daughter Allah ad deen breaking silence replied sir i perceive and own that the palace which i have built is not in its place but is vanished neither can i tell your majesty where it may be but can assure you i had no concern in its removal i am not so much concerned about your palace replied the sultan i value my daughter ten thousand times more and would have you find her out otherwise i will cause your head to be struck off and no consideration shall divert me from my purpose i beg of your majesty answered alla ad deen to grant me forty days to make my inquiries and if in that time i have not the success i wish i will offer my head at the foot of your throne to be disposed of at your pleasure i give you the forty days you ask said the sultan but think not to abuse the favour i show you by imagining you shall escape my resentment for i will find you out in whatsoever part of the world you may conceal yourself alla ad deen went out of the sultan's presence with great humiliation and in a condition worthy of pity he crossed the courts of the palace hanging down his head and in such great confusion that he durst not lift up his eyes the principal officers of the court who had all professed themselves his friends and whom he had never disobliged instead of going up to him to comfort him and offer him a retreat in their houses turned their backs to avoid seeing him but had they accosted him with a word of comfort or offer of service they would have no more known alla ad deen he did not know himself and was no longer in his senses as plainly appeared by his asking everybody he met and at every house if they had seen his palace or could tell him any news of it these questions made the generality believe that alla ad deen was mad some laughed at him but people of sense and humanity particularly those who had had any connection of business or friendship with him really pitied him for three days he rambled about the city in this manner without coming to any resolution or eating anything but what some compassionate people forced him to take out of charity at last as he could no longer in his unhappy condition stay in a city where he had lately been next to the sultan he took the road to the country and after he had traversed several fields in wild uncertainty at the approach of night came to the bank of a river there possessed by his despair he said to himself where shall i seek my palace in what province country or part of the world shall i find that and my dear princess whom the sultan expects from me i shall never succeed i had better free myself at once from fruitless endeavours and such bitter grief as preys upon me he was just going to throw himself into the river but as a good mussulman true to his religion he thought he should not do it without first saying his prayers going to prepare himself he went to the river's brink in order to perform the usual ablutions the place being steep and slippery from the water beating against it he slid down and had certainly fallen into the river but for a little rock which projected about two feet out of the earth happily also for him 
he still had on the ring which the African magician had put on his finger before he went down into the subterraneous abode to fetch the precious lamp. In slipping down the bank, he rubbed the ring so hard by holding on the rock that immediately the same genie appeared whom he had seen in the cave where the magician had left him. "'What wouldst thou have?' said the genie. "'I am ready to obey thee as thy slave.' and the slave of all those that have that ring on their finger, both I and the other slaves of the ring. Allah ad agreeably surprised at an apparition he so little expected in his present calamity, replied, Save my life, genie, a second time, either by showing me to the place where the palace I caused to be built now stands, or immediately transporting it back where it first stood. What you command me, answered the genie, is not wholly in my power. I am only the slave of the ring. You must address yourself to the slave of the lamp. If that be the case, replied Alla ad I command thee, by the power of the ring, to transport me to the spot where my palace stands, in what part of the world soever it may be, and set me down under the window of the princess Badir al-Badur. These words were no sooner out of his mouth than the genie transported him into Africa, to the midst of a large plain where his palace stood, at no great distance from a city, and placing him exactly under the window of the princess's apartment, left him. All this was done almost in an instant. Allah ad notwithstanding the darkness of the night, knew his palace and the princess Budir al-Badur's apartment again. But as the night was far advanced, and all was quiet in the palace, he retired to some distance, and sat down at the foot of a large tree. There, full of hopes, and reflecting on his happiness, for which he was indebted to chance, he found himself in a much more comfortable situation than when he was arrested and carried before the sultan, being now delivered from the immediate danger of losing his life. He amused himself for some time with these agreeable thoughts, but not having slept for two days, was not able to resist the drowsiness which came upon him, but fell fast asleep. The next morning, as soon as day appeared, Alla ad was agreeably awakened by the singing not only of the birds which had roosted in the tree under which he had passed the night, but also of those which frequented the thick groves of the palace garden. When he cast his eyes on that wonderful edifice, he felt inexpressible joy, at thinking he might possibly soon be master of it again, and once more possess his dear princess, Badir al-Badur. Pleased with these hopes, he immediately arose, went towards the princess's apartment, and walked some time under her window, in expectation of her rising, that he might see her. During this expectation, he began to consider with himself whence the cause of his misfortune had proceeded. And after mature reflection, he no longer doubted that it was owing to having trusted the lamp out of his sight. He accused himself of negligence in letting it be a moment away from him. But what puzzled him most was that he could not imagine who had been so envious of his happiness. He would soon have guessed this if he had known that both he and his palace were in Africa, the very name of which would soon have made him remember the magician 
his declared enemy. But the genie, the slave of the ring, had not made the least mention of the name of the country, nor had Alla ad inquired. The princess rose earlier that morning than she had done since her transportation into Africa by the magician, whose presence she was forced to support once a day, because he was master of the palace. But she had always treated him so harshly that he dared not reside in it. As she was dressing, one of the women, looking through the window, perceived Alla ad and instantly told her mistress. The princess, who could not believe the joyful tidings, hastened herself to the window, and seeing Alla ad immediately opened it. The noise of opening the window made Alla ad turn his head that way, and perceiving the princess, he saluted her with an air that expressed his joy. "'To lose no time,' said she to him, "'I have sent to have the private door open for you. Enter and come up.' The private door, which was just under the princess's apartment, was soon opened, and Alla ad conducted up into the chamber. It is impossible to express the joy of both at seeing each other, after so cruel a separation. After embracing and shedding tears of joy, they sat down, and Alla ad said, I beg of you, princess, in God's name, before we talk of anything else, to tell me, both for your own sake, the sultan your father's, and mine, what is become of an old lamp, which I left upon a shelf in my robing chamber, when I departed for the chase. Alas, dear husband, answered the princess, I was afraid our misfortune might be owing to that lamp, and what grieves me most is that I have been the cause of it. Princess, replied Alla ad do not blame yourself, since it was entirely my fault, for I ought to have taken more care of it. But let us now think only of repairing the loss. Tell me what has happened, and into whose hands it has fallen. The princess then related how she had changed the old lamp for a new one, which she ordered to be fetched, that he might see it, and how the next morning she found herself in the unknown country they were then in, which she was told was Africa, by the traitor who had transported her thither by his magic art. "'Princess,' said Alla ad interrupting her, you have informed me who the traitor is by telling me we are in Africa. He is the most perfidious of men. But this is neither a time nor place to give you a full account of his villainies. I desire you only to tell me what he has done with the lamp and where he has put it. He carries it carefully wrapped up in his bosom, said the princess. And this I can assure you, because he pulled it out before me and showed it to me in triumph. "'Princess,' said Alla ad "'do not be displeased that I trouble you with so many questions, "'since they are equally important to us both. "'But to come to what most particularly concerns me, "'tell me, I conjure you, "'how so wicked and perfidious a man treats you.' "'Since I have been here,' replied the princess, "'he repairs once every day to see me, "'and I am persuaded the little satisfaction he receives from his visits,' makes him come no oftener. All his addresses tend to persuade me to break that faith I have pledged to you, and to take him for my husband. Giving me to understand, I need not entertain hopes of ever seeing you again, 
for that you were dead, having had your head struck off by the sultan, my father's order. He added, to justify himself, that you were an ungrateful wretch, that your good fortune was owing to him, and a great many other things of that nature, which I forbear to repeat. But as he received no other answer from me, but grievous complaints and tears, he was always forced to retire with as little satisfaction as he came. I doubt not his intention is to allow me time to overcome my grief, in hopes that afterwards I may change my sentiments, and if I persevere in an obstinate refusal, to use violence. But my dear husband's presence removes all my apprehensions. I am confident my attempts to punish the magician will not be in vain replied Alla ad -Din, since my princess's fears are removed, and I think I have found the means to deliver you from both your enemy and mine. To execute this design, it is necessary for me to go to the town. I shall return by noon, will then communicate my design, and what must be done by you to ensure success. But that you may not be surprised, I think it proper to acquaint you that I shall change my apparel, and beg of you to give orders that I may not wait long at the private door, but that it may be opened at the first knock, all which the princess promised to observe. When Alla ad -Din was out of the palace, he looked round him on all sides, and perceiving a peasant going into the country, hastened after him, and when he had overtaken him, made a proposal to him to change habits, which the man agreed to, when they had made the exchange, the countryman went about his business, and Alla ad -Din went to the city. After traversing several streets, he came to that part of the town where all descriptions of merchants and artisans had their particular streets, according to their trades. He went into that of the druggists, and going into one of the largest and best furnished shops, asked the druggist if he had a certain powder which he named. The druggist, judging Alla ad -Din by his habit to be very poor, and that he had not money enough to pay for it, told him he had it, but that it was very dear, upon which Alla ad -Din penetrated his thoughts, pulled out his purse, and, showing him some gold, asked for half a dram of the powder, which the druggist weighed, wrapped up in paper, and gave him, telling him the price was a piece of gold. Alla ad -Din put the money into his hand, and staying no longer in the town than just to get a little refreshment, returned to the palace, where he waited not long at the private door. When he came into the princess's apartment, he said to her, Princess, perhaps the aversion you tell me you have for your ravisher may be an objection to your executing what I am going to propose, but permit me to say it is proper that you should at this juncture dissemble a little and do violence to your inclinations. If you would deliver yourself from him, and give my lord the sultan, your father, the satisfaction of seeing you again. If you will take my advice, continued he, dress yourself this moment in one of your richest habits, and when the African magician comes, make no difficulty to give him the best reception. Receive him with a cheerful countenance, so that he may imagine time has removed your affliction and disgust at his addresses in your conversation let him understand that you strive to forget me 
and that he may be the more fully convinced of your sincerity, invite him to sup with you, and tell him you should be glad to taste of some of the best wines of his country. He will presently go to fetch you some. During his absence, put into one of the cups you are accustomed to drink out of this powder, and setting it by, charge the slave you may order that night to attend you, on a signal you shall agree upon, to bring that cup to you. When the magician and you have eaten and drunk as much as you choose, let her bring you the cup, and then change cups with him. He will esteem it so great a favour that he will not refuse, but eagerly quaff it off. But no sooner will he have drunk than you will see him fall backwards. If you have any reluctance to drink out of his cup, you may pretend only to do it, without fear of being discovered, for the effect of the powder is so quick that he will not have time to know whether you drink or not. When Alla ad had finished, I own, answered the princess, I shall do myself great violence in consenting to make the magician such advances as I see are absolutely necessary. But what cannot one resolve to do against a cruel enemy? I will therefore follow your advice, since both my repose and yours depend upon it. After the princess had agreed to the measures proposed by Alla ad he took his leave, and went and spent the rest of the day in the neighbourhood of the palace, till it was night, and he might safely return to the private door. The princess, who had remained inconsolable at being separated not only from her husband, whom she had loved from the first moment, and still continued to love, more out of inclination than duty, but also from the sultan her father, who had always showed the most tender and paternal affection for her, had, ever since their cruel separation, lived in great neglect of her person. She had almost forgotten the neatness so becoming persons of her sex and quality, particularly after the first time the magician paid her a visit, and she had understood by some of the women, who knew him again, that it was he who had taken the old lamp in exchange for a new one, which rendered the sight of him more abhorred. However, the opportunity of taking the revenge he deserved made her resolve to gratify Alla ad -Din. As soon, therefore, as he was gone, she sat down to dress, and was attired by her women to the best advantage in the richest habit of her wardrobe. Her girdle was of the finest and largest diamonds, set in gold, her necklace of pearls, six on a side, so well proportioned to that in the middle, which was the largest ever seen and invaluable that the greatest sultaness would have been proud to have been adorned with only two of the smallest. Her bracelets, which were of diamonds and rubies intermixed, corresponded admirably to the richness of the girdle and necklace. When the princess Badir al-Badur was completely dressed, she consulted her glass and women upon her adjustment, and when she found she wanted no charms to flatter the foolish passion of the African magician, she sat down on a sofa, expecting his arrival. The magician came at the usual hour, and as soon as he entered the great hall where the princess waited to receive him, she rose with an enchanting grace and smile, and pointed with her hand to the most honourable place, waiting till he sat down, that she might sit at the same time, which was a civility she had never shown him before. 
the african magician dazzled more with the lustre of the princess's eyes than the glittering of the jewels with which she was adorned was much surprised the smiling and graceful air with which she received him so opposite to her former behaviour quite fascinated his heart when he was seated the princess to free him from his embarrassment broke silence first looking at him all the time in such a manner as to make him believe that he was not so odious to her as she had given him to understand hitherto and said you are doubtless amazed to find me so much altered to-day but your surprise will not be so great when i acquaint you that i am naturally of a disposition so opposite to melancholy and grief sorrow and uneasiness that i always strive to put them as far away as possible when i find the subject of them is past i have reflected on what you told me of alla ad deen's fate and know my father's temper so well that i am persuaded with you he could not escape the terrible effects of the sultan's rage therefore should i continue to lament him all my life my tears cannot recall him for this reason since i have paid all the duties decency requires of me to his memory now he is in the grave i think i ought to endeavour to comfort myself these are the motives of the change you see in me i am resolved to banish melancholy entirely and persuaded that you will bear me company to-night i have ordered a supper to be prepared but as i have no wines but those of china i have a great desire to taste of the produce of africa and doubt not you are procuring some of the best the african magician who had looked upon the happiness of getting so soon and so easily into the princess badir al-badur's good graces as impossible could not think of words expressive enough to testify how sensible he was of her favours but to put an end the sooner to a conversation which would have embarrassed him if he had engaged farther in it he turned it upon the wines of africa and said of all the advantages africa can boast that of producing the most excellent wines is one of the principal i have a vessel of seven years old which has never been broached and it is indeed not praising it too much to say it is the finest wine in the world if my princess added he will give me leave i will go and fetch two bottles and return again immediately i shall be sorry to give you that trouble replied the princess you had better send for them it is necessary i should go myself answered the african magician for nobody but myself knows where the key of the cellar is laid or has the secret to unlock the door if it be so said the princess make haste back for the longer you stay the greater will be my impatience and we shall sit down to supper as soon as you return end of section twenty two